2 Corinthians chapter 4. Let's hear God speak to us. Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we've renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. It's written, I believed, therefore I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us with you to himself. So all this is for your benefit, so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we're wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for staying on for the last session. It's uh, just been great to be here, and it's done my soul a lot of good to think about these verses, and I pray it may yours as well. I want to start by looking at the verse in the previous passage, which concludes it. So let me just read that, 2 Corinthians three, eighteen. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Chapter 4, and if we start with the passage in verse 18 of chapter 3, helps us in so many different ways. It's very rich. In terms of thinking ourselves as ourselves as Christian leaders, with responsibilities, leading people, that's what being a leader means. Perhaps two ways in which these verses help us 
are to persevere and to keep going when we face the human inevitability of morale dips. That's why verse, uh, chapter 4 is bookended uh, with that phrase about not losing heart in verse 1 and verse 16. And I guess at all times, we feel we're losing heart a bit. We need something to keep us going. And so I hope it will help with that. Connected with that, and in a slightly more outward-looking way, it seems to me this speaks to us of where real lasting effectiveness in Christian leadership actually comes from. Let me invite you to think for a moment of Christians who have deeply impacted your own life. And for some of you, this will go back over a very long way. It may be because they were able to explain something really clearly to you and it clicked for the first time. And we all have people like that and they're really important and they're the kind of people we want to be for um, others. It may be that they did things that were a really good example to us. We saw them going out witnessing and we thought, well, maybe we can and should do that as well. Uh, we became aware somehow in an appropriate way that they didn't spend all of their income on themselves and we began to think how we might give and so on and so on, the power of example. But if you think of the people who have impacted you, I suspect that the deepest impact has been from people who, without trying, simply had something of Christ about them a sense of the living reality of Jesus Christ. And you just knew that this isn't something that was just switched on and off when they came into a room and was different when they were on their own. And that living reality of Christ meant that when they explained God's word, there was an extra dimension, and their example had an extra dimension to it. Many of those people will have been leaders of some kind for us, some of them perhaps in informal as well as formal ways. Some of them may not have been leaders at all. Non-leaders, I was going to say ordinary Christians, which sounds dreadfully patronizing. There was something about them that made you realize that Jesus was real in their experience. That at their heart there's a felt Christ, a real experience of Jesus, not as theoretical, not as just an idea, not as someone they talked about, but as someone that they knew with whom they were in dynamic relationship. And that's what Paul is describing in 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all, this is inclusive, this is all Christians, who with unveiled faces, so it's the new covenant, the veil's been taken away, and then all the complications of precisely how he uses the image of the veil and Moses we won't worry about now. I bet some of you understand it much better than I do. I, I think I've got it completely sus, but it, the veil's taken away. It's the new covenant. There's a new transparency in our relationship with God. We all who with unveiled faces contemplate that very important verb that can be translated as reflect, as the NIV footnote has it, but it's probably contemplate. It's probably about a settled position of looking, gazing, staring, considering, attending to with the eye of faith the Lord's glory. 
The revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Not simply God's power, but the humility of God's love, the way God works, which is to disempower himself and to go to a cross, having already humiliated himself by taking on human form as absolute infinite being, being joined to finite humanity, and then going to the cross. That's the glory, the hidden glory that Luther wrote about so much, as well as the glory of his power, which is there in creation. We all who, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image. Every year in Advent, I try to do some reading about the doctrine of Christ. The reason I do this is that I'm always worried that someone's going to come up to me who knows more about it than I am and start quizzing me because I really find it very difficult to understand. And I find it difficult to be sure that my particular uh, answer to any question is going to be the sound answer. It's just, it just you know, I'm really not, not very bright. And I find that kind of, those kind of doctrinal things really quite difficult. And so each, uh, each Advent, I, I try to kind of retune myself. It's like the piano tuner coming around once a year. And hopefully I, I get it right again. I've got elders who've written books on Christology, so this, this could be a potential problem for me. Um, and I read one of their books on Christology this year, and it was very good. And then I started reading John Owen, the Puritan, his volume one, um, which is about Christ. And uh, the first uh, half of it is a, is, a, is, a, is a sort of monograph, really, an academic monograph called The Person of Christ. And what I took away from that is that Jesus Christ is a simply magnificent being that the incarnation itself is the, the most amazing thing. The joining together in the one person of the two natures. We, just, we couldn't make it up and we can't understand it. It is mind-bogglingly wonderful. Magnificence of Jesus. And then the second big work in Owen Volume 1 is called On the Glory of Christ. And it's... I can't remember, 180, maybe 300 pages, something like that. Um, simply on this verse, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And Owen's very interestingly, in the, unlike most evangelical and reformed theologians, both in Britain and I think on the continent and elsewhere, he is very, very big on this theme of the contemplation of Christ. And um, um, Carl Truman at Westminster Seminary, who did his doctorate on Owen and knows far more about theologians than I do, um, has said he thinks Owen is unique in that. Even Luther and Calvin didn't make it as central as Owen does, and no, nobody modern does either in perhaps quite the same sort of a way. And in The Glory of Christ, Owen unfolds this. And in slightly exaggerated language, he says that contemplating Christ is at the center of what we do as Christians, because it is God's chosen means to accomplish his purposes in us. It's how God goes about his work in us. And of course, this would, this would support that, because Paul says, as we contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory. Christ himself is the image of God in the way that Adam forfeited, and in a greater sense too, I guess. Um, and as we look at Christ, we're being made back into that image. And so it connects with that long strand, that long theme in biblical history about what we were supposed to be and what we can be. And it happens to us through the contemplation 
of Christ. And so Ern puts this very, very centrally in the Christian life. And if Truman is right about how the other theologians in the Reformed and Evangelical traditions have neglected that, not, not necessarily in, in Catholic and Orthodox traditions, but in Evangelical and Reformed traditions, uh, Truman may well be right about that. So I, I'm not, not qualified to, co- to, to, to comment. But I do know from my own experience within the evangelical circles of my own church and the churches that I associate with, the evangelical Christians that I associate with, this is something which has been largely neglected and lost and replaced with other things. I took a bit of a risk. I think I've got enough capital to get away with this, but I was preaching on a similar theme in my church recently. Maybe it was Mary and Martha, I can't remember, it was something, a similar text of some kind. And I challenged them. I said, look, it may be that there's someone out there who's neglecting the normal duties of life and praying too much. It may be that there's someone out there who needs to get more involved in the committee structures of the church and needs to spend more time organizing things and needs to spend more time working on small details to try to finesse success in church life. It may be there's someone out there um, who is, who is who, who's spending too much time in contemplation and prayer. But I haven't met you. <laughs> As I say, I think I have enough pastoral capital to get away with that without it sounding incredibly condemning. Maybe it did. Maybe you think I, maybe no one said it. And as leaders, we should always be thinking about how we have slipped away from a biblical norm in which direction and correcting ourselves and others towards it. It seems to me that at this moment in the Reformed Evangelical Church, the kind of FIC plus sector, and it extends into conservative evangelical Anglicanism as well, that we've moved in a direction away from this biblical norm. And the voice of a John Owen who says, actually, this is at the center of how God's work in us is done, needs to be heard again. Actually, to be fair, I did have a student once who came to see me, and uh, after he described what he was up to, because he was struggling a bit, um, I said, your problem is you're having too long quiet times. You need to spend a bit more time working. Um, But I don't think they were especially good quiet times, and there were various issues going on there. And for us as leaders to be effective, I want to suggest this is something almost all of us need to attend to and give thought to. What does it actually mean? What are we actually talking about here? What we're not talking about is the kind of mysticism that's associated with going to the top of a mountain and just having an experience of vastness or of of, of finding something very special in the sound of a bubbling brook or a flower. Uh, I can't remember if I said that earlier with the preaching group or with you all generally. I mean, there's something very helpful there. That can help us. But it's more personal than that. 
Nor is it the kind of mysticism where we make it all up and we have these kind of rather chummy conversations with God, as if you're meeting God in a coffee shop as an equal, which certain versions of a kind of evangelical mysticism get into, and frankly, it's slightly nauseating. Um, because they forget that he is the high and holy one, but also that he comes to us as a Lord who has died for us and is leading us on a path of discipleship, that he's not just coming to us to enable our worldly goals to be fulfilled with a little bit of help from him. He's coming to us to show us the wounds in his side and his hands and showing us how we can walk along that road of uh, cross-bearing discipleship, but with him and with joy in our hearts because he is with us. Nor is it the kind of mysticism where we're just swept up like so many of the medieval mystics wanted into... um, an indescribable experience without much content to it, terribly powerful, but without much content to it, that takes us away from this life, like the, uh, the wings of the dove taking us away into something different, and we have to return to this life. Again, that's not what's being described. But <clears throat> what is being described is a kind of evangelical gospel mysticism, or at least spiritual experience that will be different for each of us and deeply personal but is with a real Christ who is really there by his spirit this verse has a kind of paired verse in chapter 4 and verse 6 God who said let light shine out of darkness made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ Someone has said that um, as Christians, we uh, see with our ears. In other words, this is about words, not pictures. But it is about words that we receive with, if you like, the eye of faith about Jesus Christ. The Bible's description of Jesus. The word of God from all eternity. The angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, perhaps. The Uh, The baby in the manger, the word became flesh, the man on the road, tired, thirsty, but caring for people. The man who cared for his mother when he was on the cross, the man who was on the cross and again cried out, I am thirsty, who was laid in the tomb, having gone through the agonies of hell and then was raised again and is now in glory. there's, There's so much there that we read about and that we receive with the eye of faith And the Holy Spirit makes him real to us in that. We choose to bring believing thoughts of Jesus to mind and rest ourselves there. That, I think, is the implication of this word contemplation. And John Owen has some some powerful, simple things to say. He says... A lot of it is is about sheer quantity. How much do we actually think about Jesus? Because the more we think about other things, the more we'll prize them or be fearful of them and be drawn into making them central. It isn't just a matter of quality. It is a matter of quantity too. 
about in all sorts of ways finding the space to engage with Jesus and to start that by thinking about Jesus, bringing him to mind within our hearts. And the great thing is, of course, you can do that anywhere. There's no need for a temple. The whole point of the new covenant is that it's like... um, like a kind of 3G connection that's everywhere. I mean, it's not just that you have to plug into some dial-up thing or, or have it on broadband. It's just everywhere, the connection with God himself. We have this privilege of entering the very presence of God anyway. You don't, I mean, it's a brilliant building these days, but you don't need a brilliant building like this or of any other kind of design. It is open to us with the movement of faith of the soul and the help of the spirit to connect with God by thinking believing and appreciative and humble and obedient thoughts of Jesus anywhere and at any time. And I think this is very largely neglected. And we lose out as a result. We don't experience the transformation that we could. And I think it's hard to argue with Owen when he says this is absolutely central to what God is wanting to do in us. If the goal is that we're going to be transformed to be like Jesus and the means is contemplation, how can we neglect the contemplation part of that? Now, Owen be the first person, again, to, to go on and talk about the need of obedience to Jesus and the need of activity and the need of being in church and planning things in church and all of that that uh, so occupies us. Uh, he's not a quietist or he's, he's, he's not passive at all. He's a highly active kind of a person himself and his life. And the fact that he's written all these volumes of books in such uh, torturous prose just shows that. And incidentally, I'm not, I don't particularly recommend anyone to read Ern unless you really like it. His English reads like a bad translation from Latin. I mean, it really does. Um, it is a bit of an acquired taste. Uh, I was talking to someone who's read loads of the Puritans recently, and she said, no, I, I can't really get on with Ern. So the content's good, but you have to really work at it. But to come back to this theme, I, I just want to put it before us as something significant. What are the advantages of it? Well, this isn't a proper summary of chapter four, and I feel a bit ashamed of it, really. It's so, um, so flimsy. But it means that in outreach and discipleship, we're communicating a Christ that we know personally. There is that personal connection. Verse five, we don't preach ourselves. We preach Jesus Christ as Lord, but that Jesus Christ is someone that we know. The light has shone into our lives. We contemplate his glory. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. We have a living relationship with him. Why is this important? There's quite a helpful distinction in one of Martin Lloyd-Jones' sermons about revival, where he makes between being advocates and being witnesses. An advocate is, is someone who tries to argue uh, persuasively with good arguments for the truth of something, and we need such people in the church. Often evangelists are like this, and apologists especially like this, and we can all be like this to a degree. 
But many of us are intimidated by that because we feel we have to become a certain kind of forensic personality or to be able to marshal all the arguments. And we think we have to anticipate in advance all the arguments we might come up against. And we're very intimidated by, like that, by that. I'm, I'm like that in, in Cambridge. Almost everyone there is cleverer than I am. And all the non-Christians I know are just about cleverer than I am. And you know, some of them formidably clever. And they kind of, you know, it's like that old... Um, that old alternative film, which lasts, I think, 1.8 seconds, called Bambi versus Godzilla. You know, Bambi's walking along, and Godzilla goes like that, and that's the end of the film. And that's what I feel like in Cambridge. I haven't got a home with these guys. Um, now that, but to be an advocate is still an important thing. But it seems to me that most people are called to be... Uh, some people are called to be advocates more than others, but all of us are called to be witnesses. And a witness is different because a witness can give testimony, personal testimony, to something. And the way we're called to be witnesses about Jesus is to be able to tell other people that in our experience, Jesus Christ is a living person. He's not theoretical. He's real. And you can say that to anyone. Actually, it's very, very hard for anyone to argue against that. I mean, they can say, well, he, he's real for you, but he's not for me, which is a kind of counter-testimony, if you like, to which you can say, well, he's not real yet, but he could be. It's very, very hard to argue against someone who says, there's a living God and I know him. I know God is real. I know God here I'm in this area of my life. I, I feel God within. God is real. That is an incredibly powerful thing to say. But if you are not contemplating Christ, if you are not receiving, opening up to the light of uh, the glory of God, shining in your heart, you will tend not to be able to say that because you won't have a current living reality to give testimony to. And it seems to me this is, this is one of the great black spots or great potential growth areas for many of us in churches where we shy away from talking about the reality of God and move more into the kind of advocacy side. Yes, yes, the resurrection happened because of this and that and the other. And those things all matter. They do matter. We do have to give an answer. But in the end, it's an answer for the hope that's in us, not the hope that's out there. And so often, it is when people are ready to say that God is real, that the Holy Spirit somehow uses that to lift the uh, veil, uh, the blinding, in verse 4, that the God of this age has on the minds of people. I don't know why it is, but it seems to be the way it is. And in a society which is so increasing, increasingly sees the gospel as implausible, this element of personal witness really matters. And the only way I think that it will come spontaneously is if our communion with Christ is real, ongoing, and meaningful. Someone I know has this kind of chart with two columns on it um, for the theoretical Jesus and the real Jesus. And he kind of compares them and says, you know, well, which is it for you? Is Jesus more theoretical than real? And unfortunately, I, I didn't print it out. It would have been useful. But... Which is he for you at the moment? Theoretical or real? And what can you do to move more into the real column? And this experience of having the living Christ living within and growing in that 
makes it so much easier to embrace our weakness, as we turn over the page, as the designated channel for the richness of Christ. Here again, verse 7, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Now, we often focus on the jars of clay bit there, but he does say this all-surpassing power. What's the all-surpassing power doing? It's transforming us. The clay jars remain clay jars, so God gets the glory. But there is a power at work. Isn't this what, what so often makes a difference? The power of the gospel in someone's life when they suffer. I think of, um, of dear Lindsay Brown, such a great, great man. And I mean, this is entirely public domain. This, I think, was in his tribute at his dad's funeral. And I don't know if you know, but um, Lindsay and his wife Anne have uh, a wonderful son, Ern, who's the UCF team leader in Wales, a great dynamo of energy, a real chip off the old block, and a great chap. But they had another child, I think a daughter, who, I think this is right, died within the first year of her life. Lindsay was converted from a non-Christian home. And I think Lindsay's conversion would have been in the 1970s. And, yeah, I'm sure, because he was president of Oikia in 75, I think. And uh, uh, he married Anne, and they had this dear girl, this dear daughter who died. And that must have been, I think it was 16 years after his conversion. And six months after the funeral of the little girl, or it may have been closer, sorry, some of the details are getting hazy in my mind, his father came to him and asked to be baptised. And Lindsay said, why? And he said, I, I knew a lot of Christians in Wales, and I became very cynical because a lot of them were very inconsistent, and they were ripping people off in business and behaving in bad ways. Uh, and, then, and then you became a Christian, and I just watched you. And I've watched you. And then I've watched as you and Anne have coped with the death of my granddaughter. And I've seen that Christ is real. So I want to be baptized. See, Lindsay and Anne had not ceased to be jars of clay when their little girl went to be with the Lord. But nor had God's power stopped working within them. Through meeting with Christ in that experience, they had been transformed from what they would have been had they not been Christians. And the glory went to God in the conversion of Lindsay's dad. And it enables us to live with these... These pairs that are here, verse 8, we are hard-pressed on every side but not crushed. I, I don't think that's an echo of the crushing idea we had this morning. That seems, it, it's something worse, more, more calamitous. Perplexed but not in despair. Persecuted but not abandoned. Struck down but not destroyed. You know, Christian life, Christian service includes those things. But they don't have to go the full 
way into uh, abandonment, despair. Destroyed. Someone has written, I think it may have been earned, in suffering we lose nothing but dross. And another person, suffering burns the superficiality out of us. But that only works through the contemplation of Christ and the growth of a living relationship with him. Then verses 13 to 16, in the context of gospel witness, I believe, therefore I've spoken, since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak. There's a confidence here in the resurrecting power of Christ as a living reality in partial ways in this life, and then finally when he returns. The partially in this life bit, I think, must come from verse 14, where he talks about raising us with Jesus and presenting us with you to himself. Or maybe that's more eschatological. But either way, there is an experience of resurrection power in this life, which becomes real to us as we meet with Jesus and spend time with Jesus. And the more we spend just fixing our thoughts on a risen saviour, the more it will become real and important to us. There is a quantitative element to this. Ern is very, very nagging and precise about this. The more time we spend thinking about material things, the more precious they will be to us. Uh, my great hobby, which wasn't picked up in the interview, uh, much more than painting or reading these days, is running. I have to watch how much I think about running or it becomes more and more significant to me. And so I've taken active steps to try to think about Jesus more so that the running does not become too central because just in the sheer quantity of thought devoted to it, it, it does become more real and Jesus become less real. It really works like that for me. But as we make believing thoughts of Jesus and his resurrection and his return come uh, more and more uh, real uh, and, and the, the quantity of them rises, we find our attitude to what's going on around us changes. And we find that we can take illness in a different way, and we can take setbacks in a different way, and we can take some of the deprivations that come in this life from following Jesus in a different way because we're thinking about the glory when he returns. And that leads to this experience of not losing heart, verse 16. Even though outwardly we're wasting away, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. There's an old lady in our church who's, I think, now 91. Her husband's 93. And um, I was praying for them at the beginning of the year and praying I'd be able to do their funerals during the year because life's hard. She, in particular, has... Um, uh, some sort of arthritis, I think, and is in huge amounts of pain, doesn't sleep very well, keeps having falls, has to have multiple visits to the doctor and the hospital and all this sort of stuff. And I asked her how she was recently, and it was clearly very difficult. And I got a bit of a, a list of things. So she's not someone who complains, but I asked the question. It was fair enough for her to tell me. And I thought, oh, let's, let's try, and, try and probe a bit. So I said, okay, Joan, that's your body. How's your soul? And she said, oh, my soul's fine. <laughs> it was just wonderful. It completely made my week. You know, this 
battered old lady who in a previous age would have been enabled and allowed to die because something would have taken her and now, you know, staggering, inching towards death in painful, literally painfully slow ways. But her soul remains fine even with all that pain. And this is someone who whose soul has sweetened measurably over the years, even in her eighth, ninth, and tenth decades. Her soul has been sweetened by the contemplation of Christ between the ages of 70 and 92, the time I've known her. She's sweetened, and the sweetening has come through the suffering. And of course, she's looking ahead to the day when she won't need a wheelchair and she'll be dancing around. The light and momentary troubles are achieving for her an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Because we know that it will not always be as it is, that there is a glory coming. And then we will see the glory of Christ in a way we cannot see now. Another writer says that glory will be so amazing that one second of it will instantly cancel out a lifetime of suffering. That quote has got me through so much. Just realizing that it will all be at an end. That the suffering in this life is not forever. It really is just temporary. And even through it, there can be a growth for a greater capacity of Christ in this life, as that lady I was talking about has experienced in my living knowledge of her over two plus decades. But friends, it only comes through the contemplation of Christ and allowing the light of the glory of God to keep shining into our hearts. It doesn't come any other way. And the challenge for us is, what are we going to do to contemplate Christ more? We think we live in a terribly busy age. Well, Owen wrote about that in his age. He, he, he has this great quote. He, for all his great learning, he was a great pastor. I wonder if I can find it. He... He writes about how we can... I haven't quite got it here. But he basically says everyone can find more time each day to think about Christ if they really put their minds to it. That's basically what he's saying. (laughs) Let your occasional thoughts of Christ be many and multiplied every day. This is a different quote. He is not far from us. We may make a speedy address, a, a, a movement towards him, and say something to him at any time. In the light of the knowledge of Christ, which we have by the word, we may have sudden, occasional thoughts of him continually. I think a lot of us don't believe that. It's possible to speak of it in rather idealized terms that put it out of reach. But I want to say to you, I truly believe the biblical pattern is for us to think about Christ in the day far more than we do. And I think practically that just about all of us have far more opportunities to do that if only we would use it. I think I can prove it to you. At least I think I can prove it to you if you're a smartphone user. If you're not, then this may be more difficult. Because I suspect if you are a normal smartphone user, there will be multiple times in each day when you have a little moment. 
And what you have been trained to do and habituated to do in that little moment is what I have been trained and habituated to do. Oh, I've got a little moment. Yeah? Three or four minutes have gone. Now, maybe you were checking for an important text message about buying, I don't know, eggs for dinner or something. It's fair enough. Um, and it may be that it really was important at that point to check your work emails. Fair enough. But what percentage of those moments is actually doing something or checking something that really, really mattered? And if it did, does matter so much, why did it not matter 15 years ago before we had that little port onto reality? Why is it so important to be up to date with news and sport and Facebook and everything? So much. I'm deadly serious here for certain of us who, for whom this has become an alternative to the contemplation of Christ at key points in the day. I'm really serious about that because for me, it had become like that. And the way I've started to try to overcome it is when I feel my hand reaching into my pocket is to say to myself, Julian, do you need to do that or would you rather talk to Jesus at this moment? And sometimes I do need to look. I, I need to look to see if my, my wife said something to me about something and, and so on. You know, I don't want to be unreal about it. 80 to 90% of the time, I haven't actually needed to check a cricket score or whatever it will be. She's just fantastic. But it's so much better just closing my eyes, drawing near to God, thinking whether I've actually been very aware of him, apologizing for not thinking great thoughts of him and not putting him central, but not, getting, not beating myself up about that. There's, there's this lovely bit in this book on prayer by a Roman Catholic, I hope no one minds that, Hans Urs von Balthasar, when he says the great thing about the new covenant is that you don't have long preamble to prayer. The new covenant is like a young child being able to jump into its father's arms at any point. That's what we do with our father. And so this moment when I'm not checking my smartphone, I, I jump back into God's arms and rest there and then surrender myself again to him and to what he wants. Or think about Jesus for a moment. It's so much better than just seeing what someone's put on the Facebook feed. And so much better than just sort of thinking an idle thought even without a smartphone. And I want to put it to you that almost all of us can grow in this. And if we do, it will be to our huge benefit. I'll finish with two quotes. This is A.W. Tozer. Ransom men and women need no longer pause in fear to enter the Holy of Holies. God wills that we should push on into his presence and live our whole life there. This is to be known to us in conscious experience. It is more than a doctrine to be held. It is a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. And then Spurgeon. There is a way by which the Lord can be with his people, which is best of all, namely by sensible manifestations of his presence, imparting joy and peace which surpasses all understanding. I shall not venture to explain the exhilaration, the rapture which is caused in a child of God by the consciousness that God is near him. 
In one sense, he's always near us, but there is an opening of our eyes and an unsealing of our ears, a putting away of the external senses and an opening of the inner spiritual sense by which the inner life of the Christian becomes wonderfully conscious of the pervading presence of the Most High. I cannot describe it. It's not a thing for words. It's like what heaven must be. It's a stray gleam of the sunlight of paradise fallen upon this sinful world. You're as sure that God is with you as you're as sure that you are in the body. Though the walls do not glow and though the humble floor does not blaze with light and though no rustle of angels' wings is heard, yet you are like Moses when he took off his shoes for the place where you stand has become holy ground to you. Bowed down, I felt it until it seemed as if the spirit must be crushed, yet at the same time lifted up till the exceeding weight of glory became too great a joy, too overwhelming for flesh and blood. It's not always like that. But can almost always be something like that, some diluted version of that. And as that happens, we are transformed and we serve God and other people better. Well, shall we pray? Lord Jesus Christ, we do not want you to be merely theoretical to us, but real. How we praise you for the glorious privileges of the new covenant. How we praise you for unveiled faces. How we praise you for the light of God shining in our hearts. Forgive us, O Lord, when we grieve or quench the spirit, when we put our defenses up, our blackouts up. We even try to reveil our faces in some ways. Forgive us, Lord Jesus, that we simply think about you too little. We don't fix our eyes on you, but we fix our eyes elsewhere and then occasionally glance at you. O Lord, dissolve away our guilt and shame by the power of the gospel and your finished work. And we thank you, Lord, just for the prospect that things can be different and we can spend more time thinking about you and that can be transforming, which is what we want. Lord, you deal with us each as individuals and different ways and in different times as well. Grant to each of us here, Lord, that we may contemplate you more and be thereby transformed to be more like you. For Jesus' sake. Amen.